0: Hi folks, it's Voss here from the Chris Voss Show.com. The Chris voss Show.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to see the video version of this at youtube.com forward slash Chris voss. Hit that bell notification button so you get all the notifications of all the amazing authors we have. I gotta tell you, the publishing companies have me booked solid. Like I even had to just cap it at two a day. They're just flooding me with all these brilliant, great. Authors, writers, journalists, reporters, we're even getting co-editors, CNN anchors, uh, just all the most brightest, brilliant people on the planet, the people who have all the great data information that can uh, just make you so smart and better looking. And uh, we've got one of those authors here today as well. And we'll be talking about that. Also, you can see all the wonderful books that we have uh, interviewed so far, some that are pending on, their, on the schedule. Uh, you can go to Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Foss. That way you can, you know, just you can peruse everyone you've heard on the Chris Foss show, buy their books, support them, and all that good stuff. Today we have Catherine Eban on the show, and she is an investigative journalist. Uh, she is Vanity Fair's contributing editor and Andrew Carnegie Fellow. Her articles on pharmaceutical counterfeiting, gun trafficking, and coercive interrogations by the CIA have won international attention and numerous awards. Her first book, Dangerous Doses, a true story of cops, counterfeits, and the contamination of America's drug supply, was named one of the best books of 2005 by Kirkus Reviews and was a Barnes & Noble Discover great new writer's pick. She lectures frequently on the topic of pharmaceutical integrity. And today we're going to be talking about her second book. It's called Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom, and this baby came out. It's a New York Times bestseller and New York Times 100 notable book of 2019. She uses uh, in it a decade of reporting and reveals the endemic fraud and dire conditions in the overseas manufacturing plants where the majority of our low-cost generic medicine is made. You're going to find out a lot of stuff. She was educated at Brown University in Oxford where she was a Rhodes Scholar. See what I told you. We have the most brilliant people on, and she lives in Brooklyn with her husband, two daughters, and her Newfoundland dog, Romeo. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Catherine?
1: I'm great. How are you doing?
0: Awesome sauce. So uh, we've got your new book. In fact, uh, my mom, she's, uh, my mom's always been kind of into, uh, well, you know, she's, she's older, so there's a lot of prescription stuff that she takes. And uh, so I, I uh, had her read your book, and she loved it. She's, she's awesome. all through here too as well. <laughs> so give us your dot com so that people can take and uh, look you up on the interwebs.
1: Absolutely. So you can find me at Catherine uh on Twitter at Catherine Eban. Um, so I'm easy to find and love to hear from readers.
0: Sounds good. And uh, uh, give us an overview of why you wrote this book and what it's about.
1: So... In 2008, I got an unusual phone call from a radio show host. Uh, He has a program on NPR called The People's Pharmacy. His name is Joe Graydon. And he contacted me because he knew my work. He said that he was getting flooded with phone calls from patients who were having trouble with their generic drugs. Um, Either they had side effects or the drugs didn't seem to work as well as their brand name. Uh, And he Given the volume of phone calls and letters, he believed the patients and he took their complaints to the FDA and officials there basically said to him, well, you know, it's probably psychosomatic. You go to a pharmacy, you get switched uh, to a different drug and, you know, it looks different. And so patients have a psychosomatic reaction. In other words, it's all in their head. And Joe did not believe that. And he posed this question to me. What is wrong with the drugs? That was a hard question to get out of my head, and I began to look into it. And that's really where my 10 year reporting journey began.
0: And so, uh, you've, 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 I mean, this is a huge book when you really look at it. Look how thick this book is, people. It's a giant book, and uh, you tell the story of the generic drug boom, basically how it started, I guess. Uh, and I believe uh, it was in the Ronald Reagan era or it was uh, Orrin Hatch and or some other folks that uh, helped start this uh, generic sort of industry to begin?
1: So, it, you know, the I sort of look at two different origins for the generic drug boom. One was in the U.S. Um, there was a law that was passed, a bipartisan law, the Hatch-Waxman Act. And what that did is it told generic drug makers, in order to get your drugs approved by the FDA, you're not going to have to do the same massive clinical trials that the brand name companies do, because we know that the molecules have already been approved, they're safe and effective. What you need to do is some tests to show us that your drugs are bioequivalent, that they work similarly in the body to the brand name drug. Um, so you have to do some studies, you have to submit some data, you have to test it on a dozen or so more volunteers, and we'll review that. And then we're going to take a look at your manufacturing plant and make sure, you know, you're not just making this in some outhouse somewhere. Uh, And then you get approval to sell your drugs. Uh, But at the same time, well, actually, decades earlier, Uh, What was very interesting was something I found out about Mahatma Gandhi in India. Um, He was fighting for independence from the British. And um, uh, it was in in World War II. And the British came to him and said, uh, they were occupying India. And they came to him and said, look, we know you want your freedom. We need pharmaceuticals because drugs from Europe have completely collapsed here in India. Um, if you can get the Indians to start making active ingredients for drugs, um, we will help you in, in moving towards uh, freedom uh, from British rule. And that set off a chain of events that led to a kind of revolution in generic drug making in India. And basically those two trajectories collided and led to not just a generic drug boom here, but in ultimately the importation of a lot of low-cost medicine from India, where uh, a, por- a significant portion of my book takes place.
0: Wow. And you tell the story as you go through the book of a gentleman who's, who's, uh, who, who's trying to fight his way through... Um, the system and what's going on and stuff like that. Give us a rundown of, of what's going on with that gentleman's yeah. uh, plight.
1: So the lead character in the book was a young engineer named Dinesh Tucker. And he worked at um, a Bristol Myers Squibb in New Jersey. And he, he was Indian uh, by birth. So he gets recruited to go work at India's largest drug company, Rambaxi. And at the time, and this was in about 2004, rambaxi was the fastest growing generic drug company in the u.s so um, you know for your listeners if you were one of the first people to take generic lipitor back in 2011 and you were so psyched to be taking that drug that was made by rambaxi so you've probably taken uh, a drug made by that company even if you don't realize it so dinesh taker went over moved his family to india starts working at this company, and he begins to notice that um, things are really different there than the way things work in the U.S. Um, There seemed to be very little transparency, very little sort of the high standards that he had encountered in the U.S. And at one point, his boss says to him, I'm concerned about the integrity of the data that the company is submitting to regulators around the world I want you to take your team, research um, all of the applications Rambaxi has submitted worldwide to get approval for its drugs, um, like the bioequivalence data it submits to the FDA, and find out, is the data real or fake? Dinesh Thakur ends up uncovering this terrible dark secret of Rambaxi, which is that for over 200 drug products in more than 40 countries, it submitted fake data. Holy data. Yes, moly! It. Yeah, it was. He uncovered nothing short of a global crime. This was data that was just invented, or they would take brand name drugs and test that, and submit the data as though they were testing their own drugs. So of course, the data was perfect. It looked great. Um, he put together a PowerPoint, and and that gets shared with a the board of directors and they decide they're going to cover this up. They want to bury the data. They, they want to bury um, Tucker's findings. They want to destroy even the computer on which he put together his findings. And eventually, Tucker gets forced out of the company. Wow. But he keeps thinking about all of these poor patients around the world, particularly those in Africa who are taking HIV drugs made by Rambaxi.
2: Oh, wow.
1: are you know, potentially useless, dangerous. Um, he ends up going to the FDA uh, as a whistleblower. His his back and forth with the FDA sparks an eight-year investigation, um, at, at the end of which Rembaxi finally pleads guilty to a felony for faking data. So I tell this very dramatic story in the book of what happened with Tucker. But the other question that I explore in the book and ultimately get an answer to is, was Rembaxi an outlier or the tip of the iceberg, right? When Joe Graydon gave me that tip and asked what is wrong with the drugs, um, well, I had figured out what was wrong with Rembaxi's drugs, but what about other companies' drugs? And that is when I began to look really deeply at this whole system we have of getting our low-cost medicine from overseas manufacturing plants that are poorly regulated and that get advanced notice from the FDA that we're going to show up and take a look. Uh, And what I discovered is endemic fraud in these distant manufacturing plants.
0: Wow. It's just, it's just incredible to think about. And like you say, I, I didn't even think about people that might be taking HIV or other different drugs, you know, to keep them alive. And if this stuff isn't working, it, you know they're they're just taking placebos and and going to die. One thing that was surprising to me that uh, my mom didn't know and I didn't know uh, she handles the care for two of my sisters who are in mm-hmm. care centers, and so she oversees their medications as well. Uh, but what what we didn't know is how the how the generic approval process worked mm-hmm. and what they have to do to uh, reverse engineering. If you want to expand on some of that,
1: well, sure. You know, so. <laughs> A lot of people just think, well, the patent ends on the brand name drugs, and then the brand name companies just hand over their recipe to the generic tr- drug companies. But in fact, it's it's anything but that. It's really a kind of warfare where the brand companies are trying to prevent uh, the generic manufacturers from coming to market. Um, the generic drug makers have to litigate against the brand companies Um, and also what they have to do, because they're not given the recipe, they have to take the drugs, break them down in a laboratory, and try to reverse engineer them and create a different set of manufacturing steps to try to get to the same result at the end. But the result is not identical, and the FDA recognizes that. So what the FDA says is, we'll approve your generic if the absorption into the blood is at not more than 25% above or 20% below the absorption into the blood of the brand name drug. Now think about that. That is a big range. So let's say you take a monthly medication, you go to the pharmacy, you get your prescription, (laughs) and one month you're on Orabindo's thyroid medicine, and the next month, you're on lupin's thyroid medicine. You might be, let's put it, if, if the drug is made without falsehoods, deceit, lies, you might be 25% above one month and 20% below the next. Oh, so man. if your listeners are wondering, why do they feel different mm-hmm. with a manufacturer change, that can be why. Wow.
0: That just blew my mind, and my mom was like, "Holy crap!" I mean, we like you say, we literally thought that they hand the recipe to him and go, "Here you go, have fun yeah. with that." We we made our bucks, and and I think there's 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 some there's another factor of who races first to market for generic that that ends up affecting quality uh, and stuff. Can you expand right. on that?
1: Yeah. So, again, another really surprising thing. So when the Hatch Waxman Act Past. The generic drug makers were saying, hey, we're going to have to sue the brand name companies. That's a lot of cost. You know, we're going to have to re reverse engineer this in a laboratory. We have no idea if we're going to wind up with approval. So what can you do to make this more profitable and less risky for us? So what they was incorporated into that piece of legislation was something called first to file, And basically it said, If you, as the drug maker, are the first one to put down your application at FDA headquarters and you're approved, you will get six months of generic exclusivity on the market before we let your competitors come in. And then, in that six month period, you can price the drug at like, you know, 20% below the brand name price. So you think, well, you know, it's just six months, maybe it's not so lucrative. In the case of generic Lipitor for Rambaxi, for example, that six-month exclusivity was worth $600 million. Mm -hmm. This was big money, and it set off this absolute race to be first. So it turned out that generic drug companies were lining up in the FDA parking lot weeks in advance of when um, a a drug would go off patent. They, They would bring they executives in in limousines, and they would take turns sleeping and waiting online. They pitched tents in the parking lot. I literally Seriously. got a oh. memo about this that the FDA created. Um, all to be first. Fist fights broke out so that there's shuffles. Yeah. So that, that sounds like a Van
0: Halen ticket line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. With limos, yeah. Like, though, it's like oh, the hottest ticket in town to be first to launch you know whatever generic valsartan um and but but this resulted in a quest that the generic companies had to be first so if you want to be first in the fda parking lot and you have to go through all these steps to develop a generic drug then you test it in these um Small pilot batches in a laboratory; those are easy to control, so your data usually looks good. Then you're supposed to scale it up to an exhibit batch, then scale it up to a commercial batch. Well, wait a second. If you want to cut some time off that timeline so you can be first, what if you take your little easy to control pilot batches and you make them look like they're your commercial batches? You use that easy to control data, you you make it look like you you did it on a commercial scale and then your data's great and you're first in the FDA parking lot. So that's what these companies were doing in a race to be first is they were slicing time off of their testing and production and falsifying their data.
0: Wow. Yeah, Yeah, I can can see that encouraging a lot.
1: Yeah, let me just say this, which is, if you so so you you know you might have listeners who are saying well they're just faking a little data here's what faking the data means it means the data that they're submitting to the FDA that shows the drug is the same as the brand that shows that it's safe that shows that it's stable and dissolves correctly in the body that's fake and what's the truth well We don't know what the truth is because they didn't fully test the drug. So that means that once that drug with fake data gets approved by the FDA, we're taking a kind of mystery medicine, right? We're all like guinea pigs because the drug hasn't been fully tested.
2: It
0: sounds like the Russian coronavirus (laughs) thing or something going on. But, yeah, I I can see how that would just – create a system that's fraught with uh, people that want to cut corners and and cheat and everything else. Um, And it's just extraordinary. I I, I love that you're getting this data out to people because people have no idea. Um, And then uh, I believe my mom was telling me that the Medicare encourages or pushes you towards generic. Oh, absolutely. um, and uh, for my, like my sister's medicines and stuff, they, they, they say, no, you, you've got to go with generic. Right. And so then you, you kind of have to wonder, like, I mean, after reading your book, you're like, holy crap.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I mean, even if, you, even if you swore that you were never going to take another generic, which a lot of people do after reading my book, let's say you, uh, your doctor helped you and wrote a do-not-substitute prescription, right?, there's no guarantee that your insurance company is going to pay for a brand wow. when a generic is available. So we've all been sort of herded into this low cost medicine, um, uh, which is often low quality and fraudulent, um, you know, through no choice of our own.
0: How much uh, in your research of how much, Uh, fraud and and faking of results and stuff, especially in like overseas, like India, I guess is a large provider of this. How, what percentage would you say you found there was issues with?
1: Yeah. So um, uh, I follow one of the characters in the book is a young FDA inspector who started going over to these overseas plants to inspect the plants. And he figured out something really incredible which is instead of just asking uh, the companies at the manufacturing plants to print out data, he started looking inside the computer systems instead. And once he did that, he found that the companies were routinely pre-screening their drugs to figure out if they were going to pass the tests. And if they wouldn't pass, then they would tamper with the parameters of the test to get a passing result. Then they delete all the evidence of these pretests, but he figured out they were doing this because he was able to track these pretests through the metadata that wow. was left in the system. So <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. So over the course of um of four years, um of the many dozens of manufacturing plants that he inspected of all kinds. I think it was 86 plants in India and China. He found evidence of fraud in four fifths of them.
0: This, holy crap.
1: Yeah. So that, I think, on its face is telling you that this is a very widespread problem.
0: That's roughly 80 80 plus percent, give or take.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's right.
0: And it's in, why do we rely on, I mean, I know this started in India with, uh, uh, Mahatma. Uh, Gandhi, yeah. um, is do, do we just keep doing that over there with those folks because it's low cost and you know, they've, they've got, they've got an infrastructure set up for that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, what happened, it started this sort of, um, offshoring of our drug manufacturing really started with antibiotics where the Chinese started making very low cost antibiotic salts. So those are kind of the underlying ingredients um uh and you know the plants here started closing um there is a big um you know drug manufacturing can be very sort of hazardous environmentally um you know there's a huge infrastructure there's high labor costs all of this could be done more cheaply overseas so you know western companies start our own companies started buying up manufacturing plants in India and China, and moving their operations offshore. But also, you know, the Indian companies um, started getting into the mix and deciding, hey, we can get market approval in the US to come in and sell. Um, And actually, one of the ways that this began to happen was because of the HIV crisis. So Mm -hmm. um, uh, George W. Bush announced a program called PEPFAR, which was to address the AIDS crisis. And what that basically said is charitably U S taxpayers will pay Indian drug companies to supply HIV drugs for Africa, right? Great global innovation, Um, this sort of figuring out the global marketplace to help solve a terrible problem. So but then everybody was like, well, if we're using U.S. taxpayer dollars, how do we know that these drugs are real or fake? We don't want to be sending counterfeit HIV medicine to Africa. So then there was this effort to say, all right, these drugs that we buy and send to Africa have to get FDA approval. The Indian companies started getting FDA approval and everybody was like, well, wait a second if it's good enough to get FDA approval to send to Africa, we can take it too. So we can have all these cheap drugs because nobody can afford brand name drugs. And that is one of the ways that the Indian companies started coming into our market.
0: Holy crap. So is what there
1: unintended consequences?
0: <laughs> that seems to be the American way from all the stories. Yes. America that we are, uh, we, we seem to have a lot of those here in America. Um, so, um, is, and I think in your book, you talk about some pending legislation that at the end of your book was coming about. Has that had a momentum or well, everything's dying under Mitch McConnell? So I don't know if anything. Oh,
1: possible. yeah. Well, but, you know, um, this issue, once my book came out, this issue started getting a lot of attention. And there have been a number of congressional hearings about the fact that we're dependent on India and China. Um, This is for our drugs. This is a national security risk. Um, And then, oh my God, coronavirus came along and is like, yeah, this problem is so serious. It's even worse than we thought because now India and China want to save all their drugs for their own populations. What if we're like just pharmaceutically cut off, right? And we need to be able to make our own drugs pronto. So that has led to a movement which um, some people refer to as reshoring, mm-hmm. which is how can we bring back drug manufacturing into the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Um, can we bring it back effectively, safely, cost effectively? Um, so that is sort of where we find ourselves right now.
0: Because I know, I think the Trump administration has already, like, put a down payment or a contract with all the major drug manufacturers that prospectively may be bringing a vaccine to market. Like they've reserved them for us and basically bought it up to, to say this is for us. But I know there was a lot of problems for a while with just anything coming from uh, China with fentanyl in it. And it was like killing people and stuff.
1: I mean, you know, this is really uh, the dark side of globalization, Mm-hmm. You know that is what we are looking at, which is um you know the problem of how to control quality and and get supplies in a globalized world. I mean fentanyl is an interesting uh question, actually because you need it for vent for patients on ventilators uh There was a tremendous fentanyl shortage. Um, in the U.S., because of all these COVID patients who were ventilated, mm. um, so you know, it, basically the bottom line is, if you don't control your own life-saving supplies, you're in a very vulnerable situation.
0: That's why I keep a stock of amoxicillin in the back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, what what can what can consumers do to you know advocate for themselves?
1: Yeah. Okay, so first of all, um, obviously, they should read my book so they know what's going on. But once they know what's going on, um, patients need to know who's making their drugs, right? Most of us, we go, we fill a prescription, we get it at the pharmacy, we we have no idea who the manufacturer is, we never look at it. One of the reasons we don't look at it is because we all believe what the FDA is telling us, that there is absolutely no difference, right? It's like, if we approved a drug, it's safe, it's good. The brand's the same as the generic. The generics are interchangeable, right? So once consumers understand that that isn't actually true, then when they get their drugs, they need to look at who the manufacturer is for two reasons. If the drug is effective and working, you want to stay with that manufacturer. You don't want to get switched by your pharmacy. But if the drug is not working or it gives you side effects, you want to switch. And so the first step is to know who's making it. Um, on my website, I have a guide to investigating your own drugs because I was so inundated um, with questions from readers about what can they do and how can they protect themselves.
0: What, what's the so, name of the tab on your website for that?
1: Um, it's under bottle of lies and I think it's more info. Okay. And then there is a guide to investigating your own drugs.
0: Okay. Awesome sauce. This is really important yeah. to take and half. Cause there's not like a Yelp review for.
1: <laughs> <No>, drugs. <laughs> no, and we need that. So I've been in a lot of discussions with different, you know, players in the sort of pharmaceutical world. How could you do that? How could you put, some of the some of this information into consumers hands you know if it's not a Yelp review is it a kind of certification system is it a kind of you know i mean what if what if as a consumer you knew that the manufacturer whose drug you were just given was busted by the FDA for faking its data yeah Like, what if you knew that? Wouldn't that be helpful? Can
0: a consumer get to that data or is that hidden behind FDA
1: paywalls? Well, no, you actually can get to that data, but it is, a you know, you kind of have to be a Sherlock Holmes or an investigative journalist who wants to spend 10 years of their life figuring all this stuff out, how Hmm. to connect all these dots. And it should be made easy. Oh, wow. Uh, for consumers, so there are people right now who are working on that issue. You know,
0: you have to you have to pull a Woodward Bernstein deep throat in some basement of some uh, Watergate hotel to figure out
1: exactly.
0: Yes, hang out in the garage
1: and follow yeah. the money.
0: <laughs> follow the money, which yeah. is probably true. of This sort yes, of it event. is
1: actually this totally is a follow the money situation.
0: It is extraordinary how when I look at everything that goes on with us uh, as Americans. I, we we just sometimes we're just like treated like rats in a cage. It's like yeah, throw that at them, they'll take it. Um, and you're you're just like, and you we have this we have this principled idea that like of American exceptionalism. Like we're the greatest country in the world. <laughs> and you're just like. Oh, and imprisoning people, maybe, but that's about it. Um I mean,
1: you know, you look at you look at the 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 um so you know, everybody likes to talk about how the FDA is the gold standard, the world's gold standard. But look at the performance of the FDA in the middle of this pandemic. Sure, we're gonna approve hydroxychloroquine for COVID, but you know, it doesn't work and you may you may have cardiac arrest. Whoops, that was a mistake, let's take that back. You know we saw the same thing with this convalescent plasma a couple of weeks back where where the head of the f d a couldn't even state you know the known data correctly um so we're you know we're in um we're I'm in pretty sure period. that
0: my pillow guy is onto something though that might be you know i mean he used to do meth, so he's used to mixing chemicals. I'm pretty sure that my pillow guy's got something for us.
1: Well, he does have something for us, but the FDA chose in its infinite wisdom not to approve it, thank God. But, yes, he did have something for
0: us. God, I'm so surprised. I mean, because, you know, <laughs> pillicle, pillows and meth, I mean, that should, I mean that's almost a, a pharmaceutical degree right there. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I. It, it's extraordinary, too. Um, we had Seth Abramson on, and he talked about some of his um, collective data on how many people – uh in the trump i don't know what would you call it regime or skeevy swamp swamp's probably the right word um the cabal between the people on fox news and everybody and they all bought this hydroxychloroquine they all invested in it and what's really sad is they were they were shoving it on a lot of veterans at the va even after it had been done um And my understanding is, I don't know if it's, yeah, well, my understanding is for a couple of years now, or for a couple of presidents, the FDA has kind of had some insiders working at the FDA, which is kind of maybe a conflict of interest. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe that wasn't the way with Obama, but I'm pretty sure it was the way with Trump because every division has run that way. (laughs) Well,
1: you're talking about like a revolving door between industry and FDA.
0: Like basically oh. the guys just go to work there that are in the industry, the lobbyists or whoever's the head of last company. And, and, and you're just like, wait, that doesn't seem arm's length.
1: There is absolutely a revolving door. So like, you know, going to work as a regulator at the FDA is sort of like an audition for your hiring in the private sector. Wow. Um, so, you know, you've had, and I have that in my book as well, you know, the head of the, FDA's generic drug office, which was ignoring evidence that a generic wasn't bioequivalent and then wound up, you know, working for the company who was making it. So, you know, these are, these are huge, huge life and death decisions that are being made at the FDA and every American should care uh, about what these regulators are doing. You know, at the same time, I will say this, which is there are some amazing public servants who work at the FDA, like Peter Baker in my book, the young inspector who was literally risking his life going into these manufacturing plants where people were following him, mm-hmm. um, uh, putting, you know, adulterated water in his water bottle. Holy
2: crap. Uh,
1: oh yeah. Bugging his hotel room um, you know, because the stuff that he finds out, is is a multi-million dollar decision making for these companies is having a huge market impact you know so there are there are people there who are completely committed to helping the public Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there are people there who are committed to doing what is best for themselves
0: and i think uh let me go down a list here. A guide to investing in your own drugs you can find on your website.
2: Mm-hmm. Find
0: out who manufactures your drugs. Yeah. Research the manufacturer. Uh, find out or not where your drug was made. Um, how to change manufacturers. Pay mm-hmm. attention to symptoms and side effects. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, side effects. Holy crap, I didn't think about that. that, oh, they,
2: yeah.
0: that switching might even amplify your side effects.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. Um,
0: Educate your doctors and pharmacists. Um, yeah, it's interesting to me, too, the, the you know, we saw this with the opi- op- opioid ade- uh, oh, epidemic. I don't know why I can't say that. Um, but uh, this whole, you know, it started with this advertising on TV, which, like, I still have friends in other countries. They're like, we do not get what you're doing with the advertising of drugs on yeah. TV. Like, yeah. that doesn't happen here. Like, that's yeah. just, we see what's extraordinarily wrong with that just on the face of it. Yeah. and. <clears throat> And then, uh, and then, and then you have, uh, uh, you know, these, you know, sending doctors on trips and, you know, giving them commissions or, I don't know about commissions, but, uh, you know what I mean? Just graphs. Yes, like
1: and, speaking gigs and yeah. vacations and, you know, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's just insane. And so, you know, they don't. You know, they're not sitting around going, well, you know, we gotta, we gotta give this thing to the, to the right people. And, um, yeah, I guess we just need a Yelp review for the, we got to crowdsource this stuff or something. But at least they can go to your website and they can download a print version I can see here and get some other data from you. So this is just astounding, uh, Catherine. I'm glad you put this out. My mom learned a lot, and she's going to be advocating for herself and the drugs that she's going to get. And I would encourage everyone to read the book. Anything more we need to know about what's in here uh, as we round out?
1: You know, I guess I would say that the way that our drug supply is structured, if the FDA approves it, it is okay to take. Uh, and everybody downstream of that decision assumes that, right? And so nobody tests the drugs that That was what was astonishing to me is that our drugs are really regulated on an honor system, approved on an honor system. And we're all kind of like big guinea pigs here, you know the uh the f d a reviews company data it announces its inspections in advance overseas uh and then it doesn't actually test the drugs so wow. so you know American consumers um need to be vigilant, they need to know about this. They need to alert their elected officials, um, and I would say we probably need a consumer revolution.
0: Definitely, definitely. More legislation. Uh, can you touch just a little bit on the legislation that's uh, that's kind of being presented?
1: Well, I mean, there's so there are a, n- a number of different pieces of legislation that have been proposed. Mm-hmm. Um, um, everything from, you know, Trump had a recent executive order to encourage government entities to buy American. But the problem is, you know, the drugs aren't being made here. So there isn't all that much to buy. There have been efforts by the administration to sort of bring manufacturing plants back. But, you know, what, what really needs to happen is I think a comprehensive overhaul at the FDA, which basically changes how drugs are approved
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so that there are verifications built into this cozy honor system that is currently operating
0: yeah and especially after the people that trump's put in there holy crap uh actually another question i have here that's really good are vaccines you know for just our normal stuff like measles and the different things the booster shots we give to kids are those made overseas
1: So this is a really good question. Um, They many of them, not all of them, but many of them are made overseas. So the vaccines are can be subject to some of the same problems um, that we see, you know, that I describe in Bottle of Lies. That said, you know, I am not an anti vaxxer I am a proponent of science. Um, I stated on my website. I do think that there is a lower risk to a one-time vaccination than there is to the medicine that you're taking every day every month right for years. Yeah. Uh, which is this, you know, kind of medicine that we're all on, maintenance medication. Yeah. Uh, may present a much higher risk than a one-time vaccine.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, I I was just like, I'm not an anti-vaxxer either, but I had a lot of, I used to have a lot of friends on Facebook until I unfriended them, uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but uh, yeah, and then COVID, if if the COVID vaccine gets made, is it going to be made largely here, do you think, or is it going to be made overseas?
1: Um, You know, I don't know the answer to that, but hmm. let me put it this way. I would be wary of any vaccine that is rushed out before November 3rd.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's, he's just doing that for the mail-in ballots. He's just doing that to con people. There's not going to be anything on November 3rd.
1: I mean, that is really, that is the question. You know, that is a big question that people are watching right now.
0: Maybe um, he'll get desperate and he'll have Putin send some over, you know. he's <laughs> He just has to call President Putin and say, hey, man, can you help me out? <laughs> yeah. And then I can stay your vice president for the next four years. Um, well, Catherine, it's been wonderful to have you on. And definitely an eye-opener. Holy crap. This didn't make you uh, lose sleep at night. NPR said propulsive, astounding, and disturbing. So there <laughs> that one. But definitely educate yourself. You want to advocate for yourself. You want to know what's going on. Uh, if you're on cancer medications, HIV medications, all these different me- medications, this is really important. Uh, Catherine, give us your website one more time so people sure. can check that out.
1: Uh, www.catherineeban.com.
0: There you go. Guys, check out our book. You can pick it up at Amazon or other local booksellers with you. It's hard to miss. It's got a bunch of blue pills on the cover of it. And, uh, Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom. It's a New York Times bestseller, so that's always good to have. Uh, and go, you can go to Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You see all the books of the wonderful authors. Pick up her book. You can also uh, go to YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss, see the video version of this, and uh, you can uh, subscribe there. It's free, to for a very unlimited time. Go before that unlimited time runs out subscribe. You can also go to the and uh, tell your friends, neighbors, relatives. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you guys next time.
2: Thank you.